0: The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Jess, and I am joined today by Mike Boylan, the CEO of Crisis Preparation and Recovery. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jess. It's uh, it's great to spend some time with you.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to kind of dig into your story and your role with CPR. CEO, that title holds a lot of weight, but I honestly don't know what it entails. So I'm excited to hear, what does a day-to-day look like for you?
1: Sure. Well that's uh, you know, it's it's certainly never a dull moment uh, for me, thankfully. I, I really um, kind of cherish the opportunities that I have uh, within CPR and and I would say just that it's it's really where I try where I live most of the time, so to speak, work wise, is kind of at the macro levels. And so my work every day involves uh, certainly, a number of healthcare policy issues that are critically important for uh, healthcare organizations and specifically uh, mental health agencies like ourselves, really trying to monitor those um, situations, making sure that. We have a voice at the table when it comes to important health policy uh, issues because they can have a very positive impact on us as an organization, as well as they can have a very negative impact um, if if our voices are not heard. So I spend um, you know, a, a decent part of every day throughout the year working on health policy related issues. And that could be, that can range from um, you know, issues around threats to the Affordable Care Act, uh, ensuring that the uh, Medicaid expansion population can continue receiving benefits in the in our state system. It can mean um, issues kind of at the DC level with um, uh, initiatives to uh, ensure that the state is receiving its fair share of healthcare dollars, whether those are for Medicaid whether it's for grants, whether it's for uh, opportunities to serve kind of underrepresented populations, as well as trying to help kind of uh, with uh, additional benefits for folks that might be on Medicare that are frail and elderly that might not have the kinds of resources to uh, receive all the services that they would under their their Medicare benefits. So policy is a big part of what I do. Certainly discussing ways that CPR can play an important role in the delivery system with either regulators or health insurance companies, other kind of entry points into the system, whether they're hospitals or municipalities. Could be primary care offices and so forth. So a lot of my work involves identifying where we can be really good partners to others and how we might be able to serve and meet uh, those entity needs, because in doing so, we're meeting the patients or members that they're serving. So that just gives a kind of a day-to-day kind of look and you know my meeting just previous to uh joining you today was talking about issues around medicaid and uh, financial stability around medicaid and um, that plays an important role at cpr because it it's it's about 50 percent of the budget that we have in is directly from that funding stream
0: well said you know Yeah, absolutely. It really gives me a much better perspective. And I'm not surprised because that's how I was first introduced to you is through all of your advocacy work. Um, I think actually one of the first images I ever saw of you was downtown at a rally for something. So you are like out there on the streets, working really closely with local and national governments to address these issues. And for me, it what i got from it is you know when i read your emails and i i see your updates you're very passionate about this about making sure that very good quality mental health care is available across the board to anyone who needs it
1: well i appreciate that Jess i think that's an important part of really all of our responsibilities and certainly the role that i have in 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 the organization is to be Really dedicate my time and my energy and and ensure that I have the knowledge about kind of where we are in the in the healthcare chapter if you if if for lack of a better word is where where situations are so that we can you know we can lend a voice, we can uh, raise concerns. You know, and we can be out when it's necessary. We can out really be whether it's, um, you know, peacefully protesting against, uh, you know, there, there was the, uh, the issue around the Affordable Care Act. Um, I know threats to the Affordable Care Act that occurred over the last few years and that that really, you know, gave me an additional, I felt like I, I felt compelled to be, you know, speaking to, uh, our, congressional delegation, speaking to the governor, speaking to, you know, going back to D.C. for what we refer to as Hill Day advocacy efforts, you know, as part of our um, national council, which is our advocacy group, and certainly participate in every way possible with with our Arizona chapter and especially at the state level, you know, folks that are working either in state government or whatever, they're, they're limited on how much political work or political advocacy they can do just because of the jobs they hold. And so they really rely on individuals and groups and agencies like ours to be out in the forefront, to be kind of aware of, um, uh, what's happening, kind of at the at the policy level? What what are some threats, major threats to the system of care, um, and how what the impact that could be on, that could be? And I'll just give you kind of a historical, you know, something that kind of motivates me every day. And um, one because I lived it from a direct practice perspective as kind of a previous crisis counselor myself when I used to go out and and do work in the the hospital settings for CPR, there was a period of time where the state budget um, really could not support the level of expansion in Medicaid Uh, that occurred back in like 2004. And so in 2011, during the downturn, the state had to make some very difficult financial decisions that impacted hundreds of thousands of people. And we saw those individuals, um, uh, many of them, uh, in the emergency rooms that once had insurance, now they're without. And um, they really did not have a way to get the care that they needed. So they would end up in very expensive kind of emergency departments. They have to be admitted to hospital levels of care because of the severity of their symptoms. Uh, We're not taken care of at an earlier preventative level, kind of in an outpatient delivery model. And so, you know, it just, it's a motivating force for me now because it's not that that threat has gone away. And the impact could even be more severe, especially now during the, uh, this COVID emergency. There we're literally, you know, six to 800,000 people could be at threat of losing their insurance because the state and the federal government would not have the financial resources to support it. And so I'm doing everything I can to try to help minimize that or avoid that from occurring. And that requires, you know, for me to be fully aware of those issues, but also be able to share that with as many people as possible. And certainly, whom, whom better than folks at CPR that have a that that are seeing individuals that have a, you know, that want to see the best and um, ensure that people get the, ne- the necessary services and so forth. That they, you know, they need all of us to be a collective voice for them. So that's a big part of what I kind of I'm driven to do. And I think it has the best interest of all and all parties involved from the from the member to um, other health organizations that we rely on to our employees to so that we ensure that people have a good place to work and can earn a salary and benefits and all that kind of stuff. So it, it aligns with a lot of areas that I'm concerned about and have an interest in. And um, I'm just really thankful that I, you know, that I'm given an opportunity every day to do that.
0: Most definitely. Man, that sounds like an insurmountable task when you talk about hundreds of thousands of people who in the past have lost health insurance or, you know, the potential for an event like that to occur again. Does it help having your position as sort of a, for a lack of better terms, uh, leadership so that you can kind of rally people? Because I can imagine, right, it takes a village.
1: Absolutely. I feel compelled to be able to share this information with everyone um, and and try to draw the kind of the connection and linkage to what the impact is with the hope that it never reaches the the kind of the the uh, major storm that's that's possible. Um, And so I do try to not create, you know, insurmountable fear, so that the you know, the people just become kind of um, numb to what the what the uh, difficulties could be. But at the same time, I do feel the need to try to motivate and nudge people to say, you know, this is an important issue. And hopefully it never comes to be. But never come to be requires effort and requires um, opportunities for people to speak out. And so that, um, you know, our elected officials are fully aware of our positions, because I think a lot of times, you know, Medicaid is one of those things where, you know, it's an important part of individuals' lives that have it. Um, but I think the general public might be not as familiar with how beneficial it is for, you know, the healthcare workforce. How beneficial it is for uh, employment opportunities in a community. You know, it really provides uh, a robust uh, benefit in a lot of ways. You know, to not only member care but also to the economics of our uh, of our healthcare delivery system. So, you know, I try to kind of speak in those terms that, you know, that this is also an employment issue, and it's a wonderful way to provide a critical safety net to our communities so that we have the resources to, you know, deliver care, provide care. Thinking back to um, that 2011 period, we would often have people that we would have to, unfortunately, petition involuntarily, and we, they'd be sent into uh you know maricopa county you know desert vista location so real
0: quick petitioning that's when an individual is in immediate danger and they are uh, basically they might be in a situation where they're they're unable to make decisions for themselves or or just unable to think past the situation that they're in so someone steps in for them and says you know what i'm going to make this decision." To help you get the help that you need because you're in a vulnerable situation right now. Um, is that a, a pretty good way to kind of describe that situation?
1: I couldn't have said it better.
0: Okay, so you've seen a lot of people who needed to be petitioned to receive the care that they needed. Um, go on.
1: And unfortunately, during that period of time, uh, because the Medicaid rules restricted individuals that were adults without children from receiving uh, access, those individuals would not qualify for for Medicaid. And so essentially, they were without any insurance. Uh, and when they were getting ready to discharge them from a hospital psychiatric facility they had no outpatient delivery system. So we have a vulnerable person going in that could either be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. And they were really without a a clinical provider safety net as they were discharged. So that creates a challenging public health concern, an individual concern, a safety concern. And um, we would often end up having those individuals either have future interactions with p- police and fire and emergency departments. And so the system at large was, was paying for um, these, you know, individuals without coverage. And so I was just very, you know, when, when we, when we expanded the Medicaid system, especially here in Arizona in 2014, that eliminated a lot of those issues and um, I think makes for a healthier a safer community because people are getting the services that they need when they need them versus, you know, it's an emergency situation and and so forth. So that was a big piece of uh, advocacy and uh, efforts that, um, that I was involved with back in kind of that 2011 to 2014 period as well. And um, I'm just so happy about that because I kind of know the history and don't want to ever return back to that period of time because it was very dangerous in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so that's that gives me motivation for kind of what I do every day at CPR.
0: It's so interesting to hear about that historical piece because I am still a baby in the field of mental health and I did not start practicing in the field until after That 2014 period. So I'm used to the step-down services, right? People have a kind of a ladder of services available to them that allow them to maintain a sense of wellness and a sense of stability as they move from different levels of care. So for me to hear that at one point, that was not necessarily the norm or not necessarily available, yeah, it's amazing to see in just that short period of time how far things have come. Absolutely so mike how did you get into mental health
1: interesting story so i i got my bachelor's degree in political science from uh, a small liberal arts college in upstate new york called hobart and William smith college and it was located in the what's known as the finger lakes region of kind of central new york and in my in my senior year, which was a year I, the previous year, I'd spent a full year studying in Ireland. I was actually I lived in Ireland and went to school there, and it was part of kind of a program through my school where you know I spent a year uh, away from school. But when I came back, my senior year of uh, college, there was a visiting professor and his family actually from a place called Sri Lanka, and as a political scientist, to, as a political science major, I obviously was very interested in, you know, um, European politics, but also Asian politics and systems of government and so forth. So that I was studying that region. So I ended up in um, uh, this professor's class for really the the, the in, that entire senior year and had a chance to, you know, meet him and know him. The, the, it was a small school, so I mean, class sizes were you know, there are some classes that I had that were like eight to 10 people in it. So it was very discussion, very much, uh, you know, the classes ended up turning into, you know, you you would actually have events outside of the classroom. There would be, uh, you know, we'd have dinners and so kind of learning the culture of of uh, Sri Lanka and how, you know, his, fan, you know, his experiences there and his family's experience. But anyway, I, I developed a really good relationship with him and his family. And I remember um, at the end of, you know, was just about to graduate from school. Um, he had asked me, he was like, you hey, know, Mike, what, you know, what are your plans after graduation? And so keep in mind, I'm, um, you know, I have a bachelor's now in political science. And I said, well, I really had no idea what I was going to do. But um, he, he, he said, you know, what are your plans? I said, you know, I'm maybe thinking about going to law school. And that was like the typical. Kind of a response that most political science majors gave either law school or you do something you know you know with some kind of governmental agency or whatever and he kind of he he looked really like disappointed um in my in my response and he said mike you know i really think you know from all the experience i've had with you and know you that really the field of social work is the right path for you and he gave me all his, you know, reasons and rationale and all that kind of stuff. And um, it really struck me. You know, I was very, I was, I was actually thank so thankful for him to say that because I really didn't, I didn't really know anything about law school. Um, and um, I'm, I'm just very thankful that that was the path that he recommended because I kind of jumped right on that. And it was always something that, like my mom and um, other other. Folks that knew me well would always say, you know, that really that would be the you know that would be really the best path. But it was really when he said that that kind of it all clicked, and and that's really how I started kind of uh, developing an interest for the field, and you know, kind of developing kind of a path to figure out. So I started taking classes uh, when I went back home, you know, kind of at night, uh, you know, was working during the day, and um, started taking a class here, a class there, kind of just. Uh, building building up my uh, my social work class, my master's classes. and um, at the time I was kind of working in a substance use facility at an actual psychiatric um, state hospital. Uh, this was in New York and went to school at night. So I just had the the kind of the academic experience in the evening and then I had that kind of work experience uh, during the day and absolutely just loved it. You know, just really enjoyed the professionals, really enjoyed working with the patients. Uh, And then I would have my academic uh, experience in the evening. So that's kind of what got me, that's what got me kind of propelled me into the, into the field and always enjoyed, always enjoyed the mental health kind of substance use aspect of social work for me personally. And I think it was a lot of, you know, just growing up uh, at the time, there were a lot of state psychiatric hospitals that were not too far from where I grew up in New York. And I was always intrigued about, you know, how folks kind of entered those psychiatric facilities and what was, you know, what the the experience and the treatment and the services that were going on. This was kind of during a period. So I was born in the late 60s. And, you know, um, there were, I remember there were You know, exposes around, you know, the conditions of the state hospitals and what and how people were treated. And um, so I just became very interested in that history and that experience and um, wanted to, you know, wanted to play a bigger role in mental health. You know, it's just as far as around quality and making sure that there were, you know, therapeutic, um, empathetic, um, really client centered types of, services available for people because of, you know, just what I witnessed and and certainly the readings that I've done around, you know, just the whole state hospital experience, how terrible that was for folks. And, you know, it wasn't focused on recovery and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that, that was really kind of what, what got me into the field. I just have always had an interest in, um, you know, studying the link between like homelessness and, you um, you know, a lot of the folks from the the uh, psychiatric hospitals that uh, that were around me. This was a place called Pilgrim State, and there was another place called Kings Park. These were big psychiatric hospitals in New York State. Really, that you know, they they were emptied out. Um, you know, in in the 70s and 80s, and people were basically put on, uh, given you know, train tickets into New York City, and they were just. You know that the population of homeless, mentally ill in New York City just exploded during this period of time, and um, it was just you know the wrong response, and uh, you know so it just got me motivated into you know what what can we do to really invest in the community's needs to be able to respond to uh, mental health services. So that's always been a part of my blueprint. Um, you know, and this is a long kind of a long journey to uh, to make sure that there's that there's really good quality services happening for folks.
0: How did you find crisis prep and recovery?
1: So I had, when I, when I first arrived, so I, I met my wife in New York. Um, she was a school teacher that, she grew up here in Arizona and wanted to kind of try out New York. So she moved to New York with, uh, with a friend and uh, that's where we met. Um, and it was one of the worst winters in New York. I mean, it was, it was extremely cold, icy, you know, I think the schools had, you know, probably 25 days of school days where they were, you know, the school got called off because of snow. And so she coming from Arizona it was very hard for her just from the weather perspective. And so she's like, you know, I, I really want to move back to Arizona. And so she was asking whether i would have any any interest in doing so and so that's what kind of brought me to uh phoenix and um i had already had been i already had start started my msw program i think i had like nine or 12 credits done back in new york and so i decided that hey i'm going to enroll at asu and um you know be able to continue my msw studies and get that taken care of so So anyway, I got that going and I got a job um, at ComCare, which was the predecessor Regional Behavioral Health Authority several iterations ago. This goes back into the early 90s. And so I got a job at ComCare in their crisis department. Um, And that's really where I started, you know, really getting to know the community. I got to know a number of uh, folks through... Uh, the cities, and you know, the police department, the fire department, um, and I eventually was able to. I was eventually promoted into the uh, the role of manager of the crisis department for ComCare, and and so that put me kind of in you know discussions I'd have with various key stakeholders, and you know, making sure that the the crisis system was functioning well and responding to the needs of the community and all that stuff, and. Um, And that's where I I actually met Tom McSherry when he was on the board of the City of Phoenix Human Services Council. I believe that was the title at the time.
0: Real quick, Tom McSherry is the president and founder of CPR. Um, For anyone interested in his backstory, episode one, actually, of our podcast goes through kind of how CPR was founded and came about. So you met Tom.
1: So I met Tom because I was called to that committee to, um, answer questions, um, and to provide a kind of a presentation. And so Tom was, uh, on the board, uh, of that group. And, and, uh, so that's, that was my kind of first introduction with Tom and, and, um, you know, started kind of building a relationship with him. He, he at the time also worked or was doing his internship at Teros, which, you know, is a community mental health crisis provider. And so, um, uh, that's how I first kind of got connected with Tom. And then he would later go on I had, had to, uh, develop and, and, uh, launch crisis preparation and recovery. And, um, I stayed with CompCare and Value Options for about seven years. Um, I really enjoyed CompCare and I really enjoy, enjoyed the work they did. I didn't fit in really well um, with the regional behavioral health authority under Value Options. Uh, just wasn't a good fit for me, and had the opportunity to uh, join Crisis Preparation Recovery in 2001, uh, and have been obviously there ever since. And you know, it's just been, you know, it's been a wonderful experience for for me. Um, it's really fits exactly who, who I am as a person. And I just I'm just very thankful that the company, um, you know, uh, has put me in a position to kind of work in areas that I think um, one, I have an interest in and I try to I try to excel in and I try to be a leader for the community. And I think, you know, doing that through uh, through CPR.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. That's so fascinating, man. You've had quite the ride. I I was wondering when you said that the professor recommended social work to you. I was like, was that on your radar ever? But it sounds like that's something that's kind of inherent that you had definitely heard before.
1: Yeah, you know, Jess, it's it's um, you know, I think the combination actually of my. Political because my political science degree to me was all all about political advocacy anyway, and really helping you know how political institutions really should be helping folks that are in need and underserved communities. That marries up really well with social work, you know, from a from a policy perspective and a community development perspective. So. In many ways, it, it just seemed like it was a perfect, looking back, it's definitely was a perfect fit for me, both having that, that background in a, in a, in a political kind of science background in ways to influence, um, you know, our elected officials, but, uh, you know, understand how systems work from a political structure, as well as from kind of my, uh, you know, policy perspective from social, from the social work side. So it's been a wonderful it's really been a wonderful marriage, I think, you know, just my, my uh, background as far as my, my graduate background as well as my undergraduate degree.
0: Oh, most definitely. And what you've done with it with your career is just, it's wonderful. I mean, really, it, things like that, it changes the way mental health care is provided. It changes the outcomes for people seeking care. Um, Which kind of leads me to my final question for you. What is your hope for the future of mental health care in this country?
1: Certainly, mental health parity on the insurance side is critically important. Ensuring folks can seek care because they have the resources to do so is priority one. I think the second issue is, and this is already occurring, so thankfully I think it, you know, in part for the younger generations have really propelled and motivated this forward. Is really eliminating the stereotypes and the, um, you know, the fears that, uh, of, of seeking out care that, that, would, that was really kind of unheard of like i, I don 't remember anyone you know like when I was going to school, high school, even college people people would one not necessarily publicize that they, they were going to see a therapist or they were going to see, see a psychiatrist or that they were on medications or whatever that has changed tremendously where there's now it, it it feels like it's just part of a health routine and it's part of somebody's way to improve their lives and to be, you know, to receive maybe some coaching and support and guidance and care. So that, that is a big, you know, the more that we can continue to push that, eliminate any of the bias or stereotypes that would go with, that would go, that would keep people from, from, um, feeling like they should access care um, is, is a big part. And I think having, you know, to me, ensuring that, that there's really good coordination and collaboration between health professionals. So whether that's someone that is going to their primary care doc, that there, there almost should be like, a, you know, a true sense of cooperation and collaboration between a primary care physician and a mental health professional. You know, so the more that we can bring those pieces together as a delivery system, that's really a, a major accomplishment that I would like to see happen. You know, in the next within the next ten years, is ensuring that people that there are many places for people to enter care to get really good care, investment in really evidence really good evidence based quality services for folks, and then. You know, to me, mental health services isn't just about psychotherapy and meds. That, that there is the other big role that we, we need to, as a country, um, help people with is, is affordable housing, really good employment opportunities, vocational training. Because if we invest in these types of programs, it's going to pay off significantly. People are going to have much more, um, meaningful lives you know they'll have they'll feel like there's more they can make more contributions i think it will result in a kinder um safer place for all of us and uh, so those those are the other pieces that are kind of that aren't often thought of in the mental health arena is you know the importance of housing the importance of vocation and and the importance of ensuring that there's really good supports for uh quality food and so forth so um those are other areas that I definitely have an interest in because I, they they play a role in the, for the folks we serve.
0: Well said. Yes, definitely. That holistic care, looking at the whole person and the whole situation and that is fantastic. Exactly. Was there anything that we did not discuss that you would like to talk about or any um, personal experiences with mental health that you wanted to share?
1: You know, I think my I think the only, you know, the 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 only experience that I have had is really, um, you know, helping family members that have, uh, you know, struggled with, with depression and, you know, feeling, um, you know, uh, struggling with either finding a path, um, uh, an employment path, or vocate, really a vocational path in their lives. So being kind of witnessing that firsthand and trying to, um, you know, trying to be supportive and trying to be, uh, provide some guidance and and, uh, care and concern and love and so forth to kind of remedy those issues as best as as possible. I think that's been, you know, that's been kind of, uh, you know, a, a part of my life and, um, You know, always try. You know, I've always kind of, I've always kind of leaned into, you know, helping folks. Whether it was kind of back in my junior high, high school days, or you know, individuals that might not feel as connected, um, that might be struggling in some ways, always had a kind of an eye for ways that I, you know, that I could be, you know, kind of a supportive person, um, and uh, you know, provide some, you know, just uh, kind of a friendly. And, and you know, include you know, including them in in opportunities and so forth. That's always been kind of part of my DNA, um, and you know, and kind of reaching out to people that might not you know that might not be heard or not might not be seen by the you know the typical groups and so forth in you know in those types of settings. Growing up, and and I think we all have that you know I, I think that's part of what we all do as kind of a health. Community is trying to really help and serve folks that um, don't often have a voice, right, and are not "quote unquote" powerful players in a community that that really need our collective strength and energy to to uh, help them make help for uh, try to find ways to improve their lives.
0: Well, I think that brings it whole circle. That was a a beautiful uh, place to end on. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you talking with us about your experiences, and about your role with CPR.
1: Thank you, Jess. I, I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call six zero two two eight one seven seven nine five. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.